All right, Matthew chapter 4. The setting here is that Jesus has just been baptized. He was baptized in the Jordan River, and he leaves the Jordan River, and he he heads west and a little bit south, south of Jerusalem. And the area where he's in is an area that is very dry, very arid. It's a wilderness area, and he was led there by the Holy Spirit. We see that at the beginning of the passage. And he's there for 40 days, and he is fasting. And it's implied in the passage that uh, it's under the instruction and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is in the wilderness and he's fasting and he is there and he is being tempted. We're going to look at three interchanges that Jesus has with the devil that help us understand the importance of a good biblical foundation for us as it relates to temptation. So Jesus is there. He's very hungry. He's very tired. He's very weary. And the tempter comes to him in verse 3 and says to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus has been fasting. He's been fasting to draw near to the Lord, to recognize his dependence upon the Lord in everything as a man. And he's hungry. And the tempter says, Command these stones to become bread and then eat them, is what is implied. That would sound very attractive to a man who has been fasting for 40 days and is very hungry. Only thing is, is Jesus is under instruction from the Holy Spirit for fasting. So he replies, he goes right to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The passage there is Moses is getting Israel ready to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land and take the promised land. And he's recalling for Israel God's faithfulness and God's provision to them. And one of the things that God told them is what Jesus quotes here in verse 4, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus had that passage ready. That passage was right at hand when the temptation was there to disobey the authority of the Holy Spirit over him. So Jesus was ready. We learn in this passage that the tempter is not one and done. He's persistent, and he comes at him again with a different kind of temptation. And we see in verse 5 that he takes him to Jerusalem and has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil is telling Jesus, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, And Jesus, you will be saved by angels. What he's doing there is he's asking Jesus to presume upon the Lord that the Lord will do something that was not in view, that was not something that the Lord was presently working in. So he was asking Jesus to presume upon the Lord. And Jesus again goes back to the Old Testament. He goes to the same conversation that Moses is having with Israel. He goes to Deuteronomy 6. And he says, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. So again, Jesus is very, very familiar with the Old Testament. And notice what he's doing here. He's putting himself in the position of a Jewish man. Jesus is a Jewish man. He's putting himself in that position, even though he knows he's God and he's coming to save these people, the Jewish people. But he's very, very familiar with the Old Testament such that he responds to the enemy. He responds to the tempter with truth. He's got it. It's right at hand. So the devil comes at him a third time. He takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
this would be really, really attractive to anybody. Um, the devil is showing Jesus all the kingdoms that Jesus <coughs> has himself created. But nonetheless, that would be very attractive to a man. And Jesus was a man. And he says in verse 9, I will give all of these things to you if you will bow down and worship me. And he's looking at something that's probably more astonishing, more breathtaking, more astounding than anything we've ever seen with our naked eyes. But Jesus is ready once again. And he says in verse 10, same conversation, same passage in Deuteronomy. This is chapter 6 again. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So on three separate occasions, the tempter is coming with something that is very, very appealing, very, very attractive to a man. On three separate occasions, that man has scripture ready to respond. He doesn't respond with his own will. He doesn't respond with his own ideas. He doesn't respond with anything else. He goes right to the word because he knows that is where he finds his ultimate strength. That's where he finds his ultimate authority. That's where you find the answers for the one who tempts you. So I bring that to you guys this morning because each one of us walks a different path of life. But wherever we walk, the enemy is there. He is there and he is working to take a believer and give them things that will cause them to stumble, that will destroy their witness. And what we need to do is we need to have the word ready. And so that is one of the main reasons why we meet with the Lord over his word so that we know what God's design is for us. I need this as desperately as anybody else. I need this this week. Um, and so we all need this. So just another encouragement that when you meet with the Lord, remind yourself, this is what I need so that I am ready to encounter the world that God has me walking through this day. So I hope that's encouraging to you guys. All right. Well, like Scott said, my name is Jacob Hantla. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this lesson, this review at this point uh, in build is because one of the most important things that you can get out of build is the, the daily pattern of sitting down with God's word, right? Not just your favorite passages or the easy ones, the teaching ones, but all of it. Um, and if, if you're like me, sometimes at this point in the year, especially if you started your reading plans right when build started, you're deep into some narrative passages where sometimes it's, it's hard. You sit down with the Bible in front of you and it's not always obvious. It's not devotional reading always, right? You, you sometimes sit down and if you're like me, you read a story in the Old Testament and if you don't labor hard to stand back, get the big picture of the book that it's in, labor hard to find what's what is this in here for? What does this reveal um, about God? What does this reveal about man? If you don't labor hard, it's easy to get up and just say, well, that was an interesting or weird story, and go about your day unaffected. So before we jump into the lives of the kings, um, I wanted to remind us or even teach you about what the Bible says about itself. What is the goal of the, especially the stories in Scripture? Some of these narratives of the Old Testament. So, three helpful questions to ask anytime you open God's Word. Right? Is what does this reveal about God? And if you do that every morning, if you just look and you don't get up from your chair until you've answered that question, what does this reveal about God? If you do that, you'll do well. And if you don't get up until you say, what does this reveal about man? 
sinful man, or, or what does this reveal about sinful man in relationship with holy God? Right? If you labor to just, don't get up until you write something down like that. If you find that, that it's hard in the morning to, um, to be affected by some passages of scripture, I'd encourage you to take those questions to scripture and, and, and you'll probably do well. But I, I wanted to also take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 13. I have them written out on your build sheet on the first page of your note-taking outline. When you're going through and you're reading about the lives, the things that took place in the, the lives of these people, especially in the Old Testament, Paul tells us, something important about them. He said, now these things, and he's speaking specifically about Israel in the wilderness, but we're going to see that it's applicable to, to all of the Old Testament. Now these things took place, verse 6, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, nor grumble as some of them did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. Have you ever thought about this as you're reading? Just take... The example that he's talking about, Israel in the wilderness. That as God was superintending history, as he had ordained the things that would happen to Israel, his people in the wilderness, 23,000 of them falling in a single day. Do you ever read the grumbling of the people in the wilderness and just be like, what is up with this, right? You guys just went across the Red Sea. God, God performed the, the signs to get you out of Egypt, got you across the Red Sea. And now you're complaining because you don't have bread, and then you complain because you don't have meat. What's wrong with you people? That's what this passage should tell us is these things happened as examples, that's the first blank, and instructions, second blank, for us. So as God was bringing his people through that, he actually had us in mind. Right? It's important to read when you read to say, who were the original audience? You want to ask that. In a lot of scripture, you're reading somebody else's mail, right? And you're going to say, if there's a passage that's for Israel, don't take that like it's necessarily for you. Labor to understand what was the original author's intent. Yet, God, the, the one who inspired all of scripture, scripture says, actually had us in mind, right? He said, these things took place as examples for us. And these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction. So have you ever considered that God actually had you and me in mind as he ordained these events and the way that they were recorded in Scripture? I just encourage you to, to pause and, and worship him for that. Thank him for that. When you open up God's word in the morning... Look for places where it reveals him. And where there's stories that are told, look for, for what instructions are there, what examples are there. Um, there, and, and, and why did God uh, record these things and thank him for it? 
And then it goes on and says, Therefore let anyone who, t- who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may endure it. The point of these examples is not to leave us hopeless, right? You don't look at these people and see that they fell and find yourself without hope. But rather you see that the temptations that might feel overwhelming to you, we're not the first people who've experienced temptation. And one thing that scripture consistently reveals about God is what it says here, that he's faithful, that he won't let us be tempted beyond our means to endure and he will provide a way of escape. All right, Paul repeats it in Romans 15, 4. He said, For whatever was written in former days was for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of Scripture we may have hope. So I just encourage you to make a connection between what you read and the way that you live. Look for points in scripture where God reveals his care for his people, his care for you in the warnings, in the provision of, uh, of ways of escape. Look at the way that God blessed his people when they obeyed. And look for the way that God actually fulfilled his promises when he gave warnings and promises of judgment. Stand in fear of God, but take advantage of these opportunities to uh, to resist sin, resist temptation. So let's we're going to actually apply this in First, uh, Second Samuel, and First Kings. We're going to look at some stories. I hope you're familiar with these. Um, if not, it'll it'll set you up for when you get here in your reading plan. We're going to look at Israel's first three kings. And I want you, while we look, I, I, I want us to, to be prepared um, for instruction. Look at these men, example. And look for God at work. Look for God's faithfulness um, to keep his word and to provide a way of escape if you repent. So let's, let's pray before we open up God's word. And, uh, and we're going to get some examples from, from the lives of the, Israel's first three kings. God, I, I pray that you would give us warning, give us encouragement from the example of these three men and your work in their lives. God, I pray for clarity for me. There's so much here. We're going to be taking three books of scripture and an overriding theme and trying to condense it down into the next 50 minutes. There are so many places that we could go and uh, could take any one of these passages and, and do a sermon on it. So God, I pray for efficiency, for clarity for me. I pray that I would be faithful to your original intent in Scripture. God, I pray for the hearts of these men as they hear, that you would make their hearts soft to your word. God, I pray for my heart that I would not be a man who stands up here and teaches truth and walks away unaffected, but I would be 
I would be the first applier of these things in my life that you would not let me go away unaffected from this time in your word. And I pray the same for these men, that they would not go away unaffected. God, apart from your spirit, we may be able to comprehend your word, but we will never be able to apply it. And we will never be able to actually come to you, the one who you're word reveals. So God, I pray that you would reveal yourself here and give us soft hearts that want you more than anything, that fear you more than the consequences of sin and long for you more than any blessings that you may provide for obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as, as I just said, we were actually in mind when God inspired these books, right? As examples and instructions, but we were not first in mind. There was actually an original audience that these events were recorded for. And and you might say over the hundreds hundreds of years of history of Israel's kings, why would these particular stories be told in the particular way in which they're told, right? It's weird that you you may read 1st, 2nd Samuel and then read 1st Chronicles you know, like different things are told, different purposes are in mind. And so anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you find yourself in one passage, I'd encourage you back out, look at the big picture. What was this book written for? So that any one story, you understand it in the flow of the whole book. So I'm going to back us out. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings were written as, as one unit in the context were the Jewish exiles. That's the, the, the blank under uh, two. The context, the original audience of First and Second Samuel, First Second Kings, Jewish exiles. Probably, well, written after Judah was the, the residents of, of Jerusalem were exiled. These exiles, right, so the end of Second Kings, if you look at Second Kings 25, you don't necessarily have to turn there. But it's the the tragic fall of Jerusalem. The end of the book, it's all just speeds up at the end. One after another, tragic things happen as a result of sin. God shows some faithfulness, calls his people back to himself. But overall, wickedness just increases, increases, increases. Israel falls and is taken away in chapter 17. By chapter 25, Jerusalem, the very place where God's temple is, is now being burned by fire. The king is being taken away in chains, and the last thing he sees before his eyes are cut out are his sons killed. Right, so you would have these people, and they know in their head, they've been told, we're God's people, we're Yahweh's chosen people. And we were supposed to be in Yahweh's chosen land, we're not there anymore. And God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that he would actually have a king on the throne forever, but our king's in a cage in Babylon, and his offspring were killed, except for one. And they might be saying, how did we get here? Is God actually faithful? Did God not keep his promises? Right, so these people would be asking, how did we get here? And that's what this is a story of. It shows God's promises, how they got where they are, and it's really a call for them 
to return to Yahweh and be faithful, not like the kings and the people before, but more like David. So the book of Kings, they're evidently written for Israelites who are suffering under the shock of the exile. Right Over a thousand years before, God promised that he would create a special people through Abraham and give them a special home in which to live. Later, Moses and Joshua brought that special people, Israel, into the promised land where they grew and prospered. God had promised, and Israel believed, but now everything was gone. Would God continue to be with Israel in exile, even after the temple temple was destroyed? After all, events, if, if you just looked at things that were happening right then, events may have appeared to indicate that God was either too weak, too uncaring, or simply unwilling to help his people any longer. The sweet thing is that God was actually sanctifying his people. He was calling out a remnant that would return to the land, committed to God and his word. No longer just saying we're God's people because we're from Abraham, but the ones who went back to the land were the ones who chose to go back because they they were committed to Yahweh. And in exile, God had a people who are now committed to his word and they go back rebuild a temple and then they're set up now to actually know know god's word know the prophets for the first time they're actually doing the passover right for hundreds of years after the passover was instituted nobody followed it god sanctifies them in exile brings them back and now there's a people who might understand things well enough to set themselves up for the return of or for the coming of god for Jesus to come, the king who would sit on the throne, the good prophet, the one who would, who would make, well, the one who was promised throughout scripture. So God actually had big things in mind, and this is, the purpose of this book was an example and instruction for his people in exile. So God had threatened exile in Joshua 23, 14 through 16. He wanted his people to know that said when the people were in the land after Joshua had conquered it, he said, not one word has failed of all the good things that Yahweh promised concerning you. God made promises to the people in the, in the wilderness under Moses, and all of them came true. But he also promised there that if you turn away, you will be taken off the land, but I'll bring you back. That was Deuteronomy 31 through 10, God again reiterated that if they turned away, he would take them off the land. And if they returned, he would bring them back. God wanted his people in exile to know that this was happening exactly as he promised. And in the face of temptation, these exiles had two choices, right? They could either continue in the ways that got them to exile, or they could repent and come back to God. God was using the exile to call a remnant of his people back to himself, committed to himself through his word, who would return, and then you can see Ezra and Nehemiah, to the land devoted to Yahweh and his word. And I also want, so let's let's look at page three. We're going to now look at, at these lessons for, from Israel's first three kings. And this would have been the, I think, I think as you look at 
each of the stories that are told about the first three kings and really every subsequent king afterwards in second kings you see sort of the same indicate same things pointed out in each one's life you see the start whether they started well or they started bad they usually had at least the the hallmark kings had a warning whether it was a prophet come to them or God's word revealed to them, they had a warning given to them to say, uh, if you turn, I'll bless you. If you don't, things are going to get worse. They usually had an opportunity to compromise, to sin, and then they had a response to sin, and then an outcome consistent with the response. Right? If, if in the face of sin they repent, there's blessing. And really God keeps his promise to restore. And if in response to sin, there is no confession, or at least there's no repentance. Things would, would continue to go downhill, and the same the same is true for us. So as we as you go, we're gonna just we're gonna be moving. Saul, we're gonna go start warning, compromise, response to sin, outcome for Saul. The same thing for David. Same thing for Solomon. But down at the bottom of the table, there's a spot for you, and that same pattern will, will hold true for us as, as holds true for for the kings that. We all have a start, right? We all, for, for the Christian, right? We were called by God. You were, your heart was changed. Your eyes were opened. Um, you responded to the gospel. But our start before that, right, was was that our our, sin, our hearts were wholly committed to to sin. God called us from that, changed our hearts, and set us on a, on a trajectory of, of righteousness. If you're a Christian. Scripture's filled with warnings, and you're going to have compromises. Now the question is, what do you? How do you respond to that? And that response, that fourth column, will likely determine your outcome, the end of your faith. Are you going to prove at the end of your life that you actually were a Christian? Are you going to prove at the end of your life that you were a faithful one, or will your life reveal um, reveal something else? So I want you to write down at the bottom, just as you take, as points reveal something to you or something that you want to be committed to, down in that fourth row at the bottom, I want you to take notes there for yourself. So before we, or as we, we look at Israel's first three kings, we need to know God's heart for Israel's king. What were they supposed to aim for? Open up your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. Israel's first three kings were supposed to be something, Israel's kings in general, were supposed to be something totally different than any of the other nation's kings, right? When you think king, you think somebody powerful, somebody probably really rich, the leader, the one who's above his people. And you actually see that God who ordained the kings or who who allowed the kings is the same God who says, right, we see Jesus manifested in Jesus where the son of man came not to serve, but to be served and give his life as a ransom for many. That if you're going to be first in the kingdom, you have to be last, be a servant of all. God actually wanted his kings to look like this, look like a servant, look like a humble one, an example to the people rather than one that would lord it over the people. So look at Deuteronomy 17. He goes, when you come to the land, this is, 
an example, well before there were any kings, before there were any judges, this is before they even had the land. But God's saying, when you get to the land, when you come to the land and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you will say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. He says, this isn't going to happen for hundreds of years, but he says, when this happens, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord chooses. So the first characteristic is that it would be God's choice. One from among your brothers you shall set up as king. You may not put a foreigner over you. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Right. So the first thing, he had to be God's choice and not like the nation's kings. Second, the king was supposed to be selfless. Not acquired, selfless and committed to Yahweh, not committed to stuff, right? He must not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And he shall not, or when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. So not only was this king supposed to be God's choice, not like the nation's kings, but selfless with a heart devoted to Yahweh and not stuff. But there's supposed to be a daily devotion to God's word. Right? He he was actually supposed to write for himself in a book a copy of the law. Letter by letter, word by word, write down the entire law. Approved by the Levitical priest, making sure that it was accurate. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and statutes and doing them. The king was supposed to not only know God's word, but be in God's word consistently in order to fear Yahweh and keep his word. Doing it so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So he was supposed to be humble, obedient, and the outcome would be long time in the land, and that his family after him would follow. So obviously the people did not live long in the land and the kings did not follow this example. So where did they go wrong? Let's compare and contrast on the lives of the first three kings. Um, We'll start with Saul. Right, Saul is actually starts in chapter not the people in the land. Samuel is the first prophet or is the the prophet in, in the land, right? Samuel's kids don't follow Yahweh. So the people say, Samuel, who's going to lead us after you? We want a king like the other nations. And that was actually a rejection of God. But God had provided in Deuteronomy that you can put a king on the throne. It's going to be a king who I I choose. And in Samuel 9.17, says, When Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who who will restrain my people. The people were in sin, actually rejecting God by wanting a king. And God says, there's Saul, 
put him on the throne, he's going to restrain the people. Check mark one, right? Deuteronomy 17, the, the king was supposed to be God's choice. Started out well, God chose him. And the purpose was to restrain the people. He was anointed by the prophet and taken by Lot. Before he ever was presented to the people, Samuel anointed him, said, you're going to be king. And then in front of all the people, they say, take all the tribes, we're going to Lot. Which, which tribe is it, Benjamin? Lots come out, and it goes down to Saul. Except for they're like, where's Saul? Right? Do you remember the story? He's hiding in the baggage. He's not like a guy out there saying, give me the king. I want to be king. I want to be powerful. They, he was scared. They couldn't even find him. He was hiding over in the bags, and they had to drag him out and say, this is your king. I, I, that's a pretty humble start. <laughs> Anointed by God, humble start. And then the, a lot of the people didn't want him to be king. But his first act as king, um, chapter 11, uh, Saul had a, a huge victory. He unites Israel to defeat the Ammonites. Remember, up until this point, Israel was just, in this, the time of the judges, Israel wasn't united. There were tribes, but they hadn't really done anything as a whole. So the first thing that Saul does is he unites them against the Ammonites. He unites them, and now everyone's like, and they defeat the Ammonites. And now everyone's like, well, this Saul guy, he's a great king. Let's kill all the people who didn't want him to be king. So the next thing, right? And that, that would have really solidified his power. That could be something he's like, let's shut down the enemies. Show what happens when you are against me. And what does he do? He says in, in chapter 11, verse 13 of 1 Samuel, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day referring to the people who are against him. For Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. Then all of Israel was united under Saul at Gilgal. Really the first time that all Israel had been united since Joshua. This is, this is great. This is, he's a humble guy, devoted to Yahweh, anointed by God. Great start. Excellent start. Um... And he gets a, a warning, 1 Samuel 12, verse 14. A, a gracious warning before he's really screwed up. 1 Samuel 12, 14. Samuel says, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So there's a promise there. And here comes the warning. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you and your king. Verse 24, only fear Yahweh and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And in 1 Samuel 12, the people asked Samuel to pray for them, confessing their sin over asking for a king. And it says in verse 18 that the people feared Yahweh. And if Saul had taken such a warning seriously, you would expect him to prioritize the guarding of his heart, right? Saying, it's, I have two choices. I'm either going to be committed to Yahweh or turn away. One outcome is going to be great. It's going to be well. One's going to be horrible. What would you expect him to do above all else? Guard his heart to Yahweh and lead these people towards Yahweh. 
But he didn't take this chat, this warning seriously. Within two years, and it's the very next chapter, verse thirteen, he or chapter thirteen, he's waiting for Samuel, and uh, he's Samuel. We don't know all of the context, but apparently he was supposed to wait for Samuel. Samuel's going to do the sacrifice before they go out against the Philistines. He's scared. The people are saying somebody needs to sacrifice. So Saul disobeys God, and he does the sacrifice. He doesn't obey. Something I, I want to point out here is Saul's first act being king put him on a great trajectory. But something that's really important for us, for me to remember, is yesterday's obedience doesn't guarantee today's or tomorrow's. Right? He, he apparently cared for his heart well that first day. He had a good perspective on things. But the cares of this world, right? this is a warning for us. Remember the, the parable of the soils? The one thrown among the thorns? The cares of this world choke you out, choke out that love. We're, just because you start well and there's apparently fruit doesn't mean that you're not going to get choked out. That you're going to finish well. So yesterday's obedience doesn't guarantee today's or tomorrow's. So in chapter 13, he, he reveals he didn't take this warning seriously. And Samuel says to Saul as a result of his sin, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have just, he would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not command, kept what the Lord commanded you. He did it again in uh, chapter 15. There was a command to devote everything to destruction with Agag, and what he did, I don't know if you remember that story, he's supposed to, eight, chapter 15, verse 8, He's supposed to kill everybody, but he took Agag and the Amalekites alive. He was supposed and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Right? Saul, God said, kill everybody. And they thought it was justified to kill almost everybody, and, but to keep the best things. And Saul said, or God said, I regret that I've made Saul king. For he turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So he was sort of obeying. Right? He, he had God in mind. He was sort of obeying. But there was starting to be a, a series of compromises, heart compromises in Saul that led him further and further away. The first one was just sacrificing. Seems like a small thing, but it revealed a heart that wasn't committed to obedience. Now there's, there's even more. But let's look at the response to sin. With this, I think chapter 15 is really important. 15 verse 24. Saul said to Samuel something that sounds really good. Right? Samuel comes to Saul and says, you sinned and the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And Saul says to Samuel in verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh and your words because I fear the people and obeyed their voice. Therefore, pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before Yahweh. That sounds really, really good, right? I mean, I'm trying to teach my kids what repentance, confession and repentance looks like. That sounds like an A+. 
Right? I want to return to Yahweh. I sinned. Forgive me. Sometimes we say the right words, but we don't mean them. And uh, sometimes with good theology, we can say words that sound like we're confessing and repenting, but what we do after, afterwards reveals our true heart. We actually see that he... We actually see that Saul had confession without repentance. Because in verse 26, uh, Samuel said, You have rejected the word of Yahweh, and Yahweh has rejected you from being king over Israel. And what did Saul do? He seized the skirt of Samuel's robe, tore it. He's clinging for his kingdom. He doesn't want to lose the kingdom. And then it gets even worse. Um, Sorry, I just lost my spot. 28? Yeah. Um, Well, there's, so he goes, I have sinned, but verse 30, look at, look at another confession without repentance. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. He doesn't. Primarily, he, he's not even looking for, I have sinned, I repent. Like, it, it's not at all like we're going to see David in Psalm 51, where it's almost like, whatever, whatever will happen will happen because you're, I deserve it. But rather like, well, just don't make me look bad in front of the people. Don't take the kingdom away from me. I grasp after Samuel. And don't make me look bad. He never actually repented. John Owen, commenting on this, he said that he sought the end without the means. He would have the blessing, but he used not the means of attaining it. Right? It's not wrong to want God's blessing for obedience. It's actually right for us to say, I want God's favor. I want heaven. I want joy. But if you cling to those things and forsake obedience with faith, you're going to be a lot more like Saul here. And if you're like, if you do find yourself in sin and there's consequences for sin, do not short-circuit the process of confession and repentance, grasping after whatever the, the, the thing that, that you want instead. Like, you know, it's, it's embarrassing to have your sin revealed. You might say, oh God, I, I want confession, I want repentance, but just, can, can we hide this sin? I don't want anybody to see it that might reveal that you actually want maybe the, the honor and respect of people more than you want the honor and respect of God. That you're fearing consequences of sin more than you're fearing, fearing sin itself. Are you more aware or do you care more about earthly realities or heavenly ones? Right, like as, as you go about your day, and maybe you see like Saul getting ready to, he sees the Philistines coming and he's like, I need to sacrifice. We need to sacrifice. We need to do something. He was way more aware of the danger in front of him than the danger of offending God. Right? And in the face of, of sinning, with, he's like, uh, with Agag, he's like, there's good sheep here. He was way more aware of the blessing of the sheep and the gold and the respect of the king than he was of the blessing that would come with obedience that Yahweh had promised. 
And actually, his life, he, he, you see this later on when he, uh, he sins again and again. We aren't going to have time to do it, but, but when you look at, at other examples of, of Saul sinning, one of the ones you see in particular is him with David, right? David is going to be the next king. He knows it. If he was committed to Yahweh and truly had repented, he, would have been, he should have actually encouraged David. He should have helped David. He should have um, been a blessing to David and helped transition power to David. But instead, he consistently tried to kill David. And even when Jonathan uh, pointed out, and write it down, you can look it up later, in, in chapter 18, verse 7, Jonathan points out how, how sinful Saul's being. And he does another one of his confessions. And within just a few verses, he's trying to kill David again. You see, by the end of his life, lots of confession, lots of sorrow for sin. He, he hates who he's become. You see it over and over again. He, he, he sort of starts to go crazy. He points out his sin. He starts crying. He's like, I don't, I'm wrong. And then he's throwing spears at David. He, David catches him in, in the cave and he cuts the, the, the side of his robe, right? Instead of killing him. He goes, oh, David, you're a better man than me. And then he's trying to kill him again just a few chapters later. Compromise after compromise after compromise. By the end of his life, he looked absolutely nothing like the beginning of his life. How did he get there? Right? By the end of his life, he's a self-seeking, self-grasping man who really has no thought of Yahweh at all except for how it serves himself. He kills an entire... I mean, some... Um, some priests help David without even knowing that they're helping David and going against Saul. Remember they give David this um, Goliath sword? He kills them all. He kills Yahweh's priests because he's angry because they gave David a sword. He looks nothing like he did at the beginning where he wouldn't kill his enemies because he wanted Yahweh to get the glory. And he got there through a series of little compromises and I think more than anything, he got there because he had a heart that was hardened to sin and its effects. He had many warnings, many chances to turn back. He had lots of confession, but it was not true confession with repentance. That should serve as a huge warning to us. Saul's confessions look very christian very Yahweh-following, just like yours might. Right? How many times? That, think of the last time that you got caught in sin and you had sorrow. Second Corinthians seven talks about a sorrow that leads to death and a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life. Sorrow for sin is not enough. It must be coupled with true repentance. So let's look at David. We'll see a different, um, a different response to sin. And the outcomes, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, uh, David, Saul and his kids get killed in a battle, beheaded and taken off to the enemy, the Philistine city, and, and their heads are, their, their bodies are basically stuck to a wall and they're done. God takes the kingdom from them and is giving it to David. It's a tragic end to a great start. David, on the other hand, David looked very different than Saul, right? Saul was the tall one. He was handsome. David at the beginning, 1 Samuel 16, 7, Yahweh comments to, on David to Samuel. 
He says, don't look on outward appearance, on the height of his stature, because I've rejected Eliab, David's brother. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. He starts similar to Saul, though, because David was anointed and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. Both of that, that's the same description as Saul got. They started very similar. They look different. Saul's, God's pointing out, David has a different heart than Saul. Right? Saul did what he did because it flowed from his heart. That's one of the things we focus on in Discipline 1. Right? Saul did what he did because he had a heart problem. David did what he did because of the heart. He had a, a heart after God. And he cared for that heart well. Both men were chosen by God. And both of their first acts, I mean, David's is, is a little more dramatic, a little more memorable with David and Goliath. But, right, Saul, but Saul's was pretty good. They both give glory to Yahweh. They have an opportunity to grasp glory for themselves. Right, Saul, he could have grasped glory for himself, killed the people who were against him, solidified his kingdom. David, he kills Goliath, and it's all about Yahweh. Great start. Right? Remember what, what David said. He goes, This day the Lord will deliver you, Goliath, into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts, so that all the earth may know that there is God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David was seeing the world. He, he was... He was so much more aware of Yahweh and wanting to please Yahweh than any of the dangers around him. Compare that to Saul in his first compromise. Remember, there's a battle, there's a, th- a threatening, the, the Philistines th- threatening him and he wants to sacrifice. He's more aware of the threat than he is of God's provision. So he does the sacrifice and sins. David's not going to sin here. David is committed to Yahweh's glory and risks his life. And uh, you have the story of David and Goliath. So which eyes you see the world with will affect everything in the fight for your heart. Right? You can compare it to Elisha and Gehazi when they're surrounded by the Syrians in 2 Kings 6. Elisha says to Gehazi, he's like, hey, there's the enemies all around us. We're just in this little house. What are we going to do? They're going to kill us. And Elisha says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right? So so one of the compromises that Saul had, the, the first one, was the one that David didn't have. Where David, in the face of danger, was more aware of God and his provision in the eyes in the face of apparent danger than he was of the danger. Saul, he just sinned because all he could see was the danger that was in front of him. It's actually interesting. Among these three kings, the only one, on, now we're on the warning category, the only one that didn't get a direct word from Yahweh of warning was David. Saul had the one where um, Samuel sets it out of the kingdom. Word from Yahweh, if you, if you obey, blessing. If you sin, rejection. Solomon had the same. David never had that. 
don't discount the power of God's word in scripture. The warning that David had in scripture was sufficient. He had Deuteronomy 17. He had all of the, the Pentateuch. Right? What marks David's Psalms? A dependence on God's word. He goes, how, how can a young man keep his way pure in Psalm 119? By keeping it according to your word. Psalm 19, he goes, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. David, was his, his warnings, his, uh, the thing that kept him close to Yahweh was the word of God. All right, that, that should be the same for us. And it, it's interesting, if you, if you think of Luke and Luke 16, remember the rich man in, in hell, he goes, send, send me back, let me warn, let me warn my brothers. And Abraham says, um, if they do not hear Moses and the prophet, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Right? Saul and Solomon actually had direct words from Yahweh regarding their king kingship. David didn't. But David understood the power of God's word. David had many opportunities to compromise. There were a few. But overall, David had incredible responses when the opportunity to sin arose. His life was characterized by a heart shepherded to God and his word. He wasn't without sin, right? You had the second Samuel 11 adultery with Bathsheba and the consequences that, um, but overall he actually think of the chances to kill Saul, right? He was in, he had chances to get, get what he wanted right away. He goes, no, I'm going to trust God, God's timing in the face of battle. He consistently, um, trusted God in his provision and, and consistently did not sin. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. Yet there's the, the sin with Bathsheba, right? The thing that um, isn't even really talked about in the other story of David's life in the Chronicles. But here, it, it, I think we, we, it's heavily highlighted to show God's people the response that we should have to sin. David sins with Bathsheba. He's actually looking a lot like Saul for this period of his life. <clears throat> consequence mitigation right he's oh shoot there's a baby now let's get uriah back from the field maybe uriah uriah's honorable response should have shocked him out of his stupor and brought him to repentance but it didn't so he has uriah killed and he's like thinks he gets he's gotten away with it david's looking really bad here but now he gets nathan coming to him and says remember you are the man what did Saul do in the face of correction? Saul, he, he wanted self-preservation. He got angry at some of the prophets who brought him um, correction and killed him. David repents. You end up with Psalm 51. God, before you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. David realized that his sin was against Yahweh. You see it in 2 Samuel 12, 13. The first words that he has after Nathan brings correction is, I have sinned against the Lord. There was no, I've sinned against the Lord. 
what can we do to stop these consequences? It was, I've sinned against the Lord. And you see in Psalm 51, he goes, you are right when you judge. You are right when you judge. He does pray for the people, that the people wouldn't bear the consequences of the sin. Um, but he ultimately says, I've sinned against the Lord. And then it's Nathan who says, uh, the Lord's put away your sin, you shall not die. God takes care of the consequences. David's just concerned about the sin. And he goes, nevertheless, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. David mourns, he prays, he fasts. He doesn't want that child to die. But ultimately, he realizes that um, turning from the sin is more important than grasping for himself. David shows signs of, not perfectly, but he shows signs of biblical repentance. He, he has a similar response in 1 Samuel 25 when Abigail protected him from sinful vengeance against Nabal. We don't have time to go there. But David, you see multiple times when there's correction brought to him, he doesn't lash out against the one who brings the correction. Rather, he, he actually tends to show quick repentance and a gratefulness to the one who brought the, who brought the correction. Um, that needs to be a sign of us, right? Th- think of the protection. Think of the, the, the gracious thing that somebody does when they take it into their own hands, the dangerous task, the hard task to come to you, even if they don't see the sin perfectly, and say, brother, I'm concerned for you. I see this, this, this in your life. I'm concerned that this is sin. Can I walk with you towards repentance and they might not do it perfectly and I'm telling you that that the Saul in you the self-grasping the remnant of of your old man won't like that that you'll your first response or, or the sinful response in your heart may be to lash out to minimize your own sin try to mitigate the consequences retain your own honor put that to death look for every chance you have to make humble confession of sin. And when you make confession of sin, make it as humiliating as possible. I promise you that we will not see our sin worse than it is. Right? Before God, if, if no matter the smallest sin that you have, if it would earn the wrath of God that would put you in hell forever. God's not wrong. He's right. His judgment of sin is death. And yet, my response is a lot like my daughter's, who's not saved yet. When she confesses sin, she likes to say, I sinned, but everybody sins, Dad. Right? But I sinned, but he sinned too. Um, You know, I, I sinned, but can I have it anyway? Right? Like, like minimize it. It's, I see myself in that too. I'm not beyond that. We're not beyond that. But this is a good example and instruction for us. And you see the, the trajectory of Saul's life was set because of his response to sin. And the, David's heart was revealed in his response to sin. Ours will be the same. The outcome of David's life. He didn't finish perfectly, but he finished well. 
He was known as a man after God's own heart. What I love about scripture is it doesn't gloss over David's sin. It doesn't only present the good stuff. But yet, Yahweh says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Through David, and because of his obedience, God promised the line that would end in Jesus. David's outcome of his faithfulness is that God keeps his promise to establish his kingdom through David forever, ultimately in Jesus. It's a sweet outcome. And the way that it um, came was because he was a man after God's own heart who cared for his heart well, kept it pure by keeping it according to his word. And at the end of his life, he handed off the baton to his son, right? He cared for his own heart and listened to his words to his son. These are words that I'd want to be able to speak to my son. This is a first Kings chapter two. The end of David's life is the start of Solomon's um, time on the throne. Chapter two, verse one. When David's time to die drew near, first Kings two, verse one. He commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of Yahweh, your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. If your sons pay attention to their way and walk before me in faithfulness, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Out of the abundance of his own heart, he's caring for the heart of his son. At the same time, right, it's his ministry, D3. He's supposed to be, he's king over Israel, supposed to be an example to them. And he's doing that, sending his son off in the exact same trajectory. Solomon's start is sweet. It's this, he's called by David to devote his heart and life to Yahweh, just as David had. And in 1 Kings 3, um, verse 1, it, it apparently starts well. There's a little caveat here. Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David his father. Again, we have a good start. And what did he do when Yahweh, when he's, right when he asked for wisdom? He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. He could have asked God for anything. And he understood my task as king is to lead this people in righteousness. Yahweh, who could, who could do this? Give me wisdom. And in response to his request, Yahweh says, 1 Kings 3, verse 14, verse 11, he goes, because you've asked for this, I'm going to give you riches too. And if you walk in my ways, this is the warning to him. Verse 14, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, I will lengthen your days. Solomon's compromise is more subtle and more permeating throughout his whole life. If you look at 1 Kings 3, you see it. Um, 3 3 Solomon loved Yahweh and walked in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. 
Right? He loved God. It was real. He loved God. But he wasn't wholly devoted to him. He made compromises and worshipped in places he shouldn't. Compare that to Numbers 33.52 that says, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy the figured stones and destroy their metal images and demolish all their high places. Right, David kept his heart close to God according to his word. Solomon, it appears, didn't spend a whole lot of time in God's word. Did what made sense to him. I'm going to worship Yahweh, but do it at the high places. Compromise that he never should have made. Did it because he didn't take God's word seriously. Set him on a trajectory. That seems like a little thing at the beginning, right? Little little compromise he thought was justifiable. What about wives? 1 Kings 3.1 Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's a good idea, right? He's like, I'm a big time nation now, right? For the first time, we're like on the world stage. I get to marry the daughter of the most powerful neighboring nation, Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. And if you look at 1 Kings 3, 1, 7, 8, 9, 16, you see throughout, there's these landmarks throughout the story of Solomon's kingship that say, and there was a compromise with the daughter of Pharaoh. Right? He made, made the temple, and he also made Pharaoh's daughter's house. And you see a compromise there. Compare that with uh, 1 Kings, or sorry, with Deuteronomy 17. Do you remember? You might want to open to, first, to Deuteronomy 17. This is a good comparison to Saul's, uh, Solomon's life. We're almost done. Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 17. Look what it said to the king. Don't return to Egypt. Don't acquire many wives, lest his heart turn away. Right? He, you're supposed to stay away from Egypt. I brought you out of there. And don't get many wives. And he does both. He goes to Egypt to get a wife. Again, he's not taking God's word seriously, not keeping his heart according to his word, but a compromise that maybe seemed justifiable. Wealth. 1 Kings 10.4. Think of this. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. That's 25 tons of gold. I mean, that's like a wealth that's unimaginable today. 1 Kings 10.21, none of King Solomon's drinking vessels were silver. All were gold. Because silver wasn't considered anything in the days of Solomon. What did Deuteronomy 17.17 say? The king shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. That seems pretty excessive. But isn't it evidence of God's blessing? You can't love both God and money. We have a very similar warning, and we live in a, this is, I need to hear this. We live in a time where it's really easy. We look around, there's everything calling for our attention, this consumeristic culture and, and world that we live in. It's justifiable. I, it's God's blessing to me. I have this money. I'm going to use it for myself. That's okay. You can, right? It's God's blessing. It, shouldn't um it's another sermon i can't get into that but you can sanctify it through thanksgiving and prayer but don't love it (laughs) um saul solomon made compromises 
let's look at this one in First Kings ten twenty six. He gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had fourteen hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen. And this is the kicker, verse twenty eight. Solomon's import of horses was from where? From Egypt. Deuteronomy seventeen six. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. He could have justified to himself that all of this was a blessing from Yahweh. Yahweh even explicitly said, because you didn't ask for all these riches and wisdom, I'm going to give you riches. But he went after them in a way that specifically and explicitly went against God's word. Men, we must know God's word. Take the warnings and examples there seriously. Because our hearts are prone to wander. Shepherding your heart. It isn't just some ethereal devotional thing you do in the morning with worship music and you feel good when you get up from God's word. You must get your heart before God's word to know God's word so that you can keep God's word. Not to earn righteousness, right? We don't do this to earn righteousness. That's been established for us at the cross. Yet when God's word says, don't you know that the sexually immoral won't inherit the kingdom of God? Right? When you have in, in Galatians 5 a, a list of the deeds of the flesh, and you say, because if you live like this, you don't get to go to heaven. Do we take that seriously? You say, oh, I'm good because of the cross. Yes, you're good because of the cross when you sin. Such were some of you. But you've been sanctified. And when you sin, right, the word was written so that you may not sin. And if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But don't skip over the fact that this was written so that we may not sin. No temptations overcome us except that's what, that which is common to man. And he will provide a way of escape. There is hope if we endure. Solomon's response to sin, Yahweh himself warned and rebuked him in chapter 11. In the end of his life, Jeroboam, look at 1140, and we're going to end with this. Solomon, there's going to be, right, the kingdom was going to be split as a result of Solomon's compromise. Jeroboam was going to take part of the throne. God tells him this. And reminiscent of Saul grabbing at Samuel's robe and Saul wanting to murder David, grasping for himself, wanting to undo the consequences of sin rather than being brought to himself and repenting, look what he does in 1140. It should have been Solomon sought, therefore, to repent. Solomon sought God's favor, but no, it says Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. Compromise after compromise after compromise turned his heart away. The one who wrote Proverbs 4, 23, that says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The one who said, who knew better than any of us, guard your heart, didn't. His heart was turned away. And one of the last recorded acts in scripture of him is him trying to kill the consequence of his sin rather than repent. Guys, we're not better than Solomon in and of ourselves. But we can have an outcome and a response to sin different. We're not better than Saul in and of ourselves, but we can have a response better. Guys, we have a chance because we've been given new hearts. 
because we have the Holy Spirit, we have a chance to guard these hearts above all else with all vigilance. Discipline one, which you learn every week in here. This is not a game. You must guard your heart like your very life. The legacy of your family and this ministry, this church depends on it because in a very real sense it does. I hope that these kings are examples and instructions to us and that every day you realize when you sit down with God's word that there's a preciousness to the very thing that you have in front of you. God ordained these stories, these examples as instructions and examples that we may have hope, that we might not desire evil as they did. Um, so let's, let's pursue God together in his word, fleeing from sin and helping each other.